I am extremely nervous to preach this morning. We are going to be tackling the words of Jesus this morning. And as I was preparing to preach this morning, I want to just say each time I opened a book, to dig. I was confronted, convicted, and conflicted. And although it was difficult for me, it was good. It is how the Word of God, which is alive and breathing, in connection to the work of the Spirit of God, begins to change and transform the way that we think. And it is not until God grabs a hold of the way that we think that our lives will actually change in how we live them. And so why don't we just open with a word of prayer this morning, and then uh, we can dig into our Bible study together. Father, we are here today to be changed by you. We're not here to check a box. We're not here because somebody else expects us to be here. We're not here because we think that by coming to church we're somehow saved. We're not here because we think that we belong here. We know, Father, that those who have put faith in the work of your son and what he accomplished, do belong here. Right. Father, if there is anyone in the room who has yet to see you as both Lord and Savior, I pray that the words that we read this morning would have a very similar effect on their hearts and their minds as the word had on me throughout the week, and for your children who have been bought by your blood and indwelt by your spirit, I pray the same thing, Father. We are asking for ears to hear and for eyes to see. We want hearts that are going to seek after you, not only now, but forever. You, Lord, Our life, in you is life. You have the words that lead to life. And so help us this morning to focus on hearing from you, Lord. As we sang this morning, you are alive, living and breathing. And you are here in this room. And so we are turning to you, we are submitting our will for your will, our words for your words, our ways for your ways. God, have your way this morning in this room and in our lives. Help me, Lord. 
I can do nothing apart from you. Bless our study. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was praying, maybe some of you were thinking, this guy doesn't know why I'm here. He can't say those things. He's standing on the stage and he's making accusations. He's making assumptions. He's coming to conclusions without data that I've given him. How can he therefore tell me or speak about anyone in the room to the room about why we're here. That's a very individualistic way of thinking, my friends. And we are not a family that is driven by individualism. We are a family that is driven by communalism. It is not we who decide who we are and what our value is. First and foremost, it is Christ. Second, that is affirmed in the community. Nobody gets to stand in the room and say, I am this, live however they want, and dictate that the community refer to them in that way. That's shameful behavior. We submit ourselves to the will of God, to the word of God, and to the people of God. And in the fellowship of the saints, as we live our lives out in front of one another, the character that we display builds the reputation that we desire to have. And it is the community that affirms that very reputation. Amen? And so as a community, we get to say why we are here this morning. I'm not speaking on my own behalf over you or at you, I'm speaking alongside of you and with you to you. Why are we here this morning? We're here this morning to open up the Word of God. <laughs> We're here this morning to hear from the living God. We're here this morning to be changed and transformed by the Spirit of God. <laughs> That's why we're here. And no one can sit in the room and say they're here for another purpose. You may have a different desire, but that's what we're here for. Okay? <laughs> and nobody gets to change or dictate anything differently. You are free to stay and you are free to go. <laughs> but the community here is after those things week after week, day after day, month after month, year after year, and it's not changing. Okay? We're not going to compromise on why we're here. And we're not going to say something that's going to try to please you or make you feel better. We're going to tell you the truth from a foundation of love with grace and hope that it lands. But that's all we can do. So much is said. And so often, other is heard. <laughs> you know? I don't like how the guy's talking. He's amped up right now. <laughs> That's passion. It's zeal. It's not anger. And if you misinterpret that as anger and you tone me out and tune me out, that's on you because you're the one misinterpreting my approach to the conversation this morning. How often do we do that? Let's not do that today. Let's not do that any day. Let's strive to do better. Let's strive to actively listen and engage and learn. 
Okay? That brings me to my next point. Now that we know why we're here, let's look at this next slide. It's all right. This is what's referred to as the hermeneutical spiral. Okay? This is a good image to get familiar with. Everyone has a pre-understanding. Everyone has presuppositions. We all have bias. It's true. If you are a human being and you are an image bearer of God, this is true of you. And as you live life and as you go through life, you encounter the text of Scripture. This is an experience, by the way. And as you continue to go through life, after you encounter the text, you come to new understanding. This is why we're here, everybody. (laughs) As you continue to live and breathe and do life, you take that new understanding and you come back to the text and you have more interaction with the text. This is not done in isolation, by the way. This is also done in the midst of the fellowship, what we're doing this morning. God uses you to correct me, and he uses me to correct you, and he uses the Spirit to lead us all. Amen? Amen. All right. So we have more interaction with the text, which brings us to further synthesize our pre-understanding, our initial encounter, our initial understanding, And through further synthesis, we come to deeper understanding. Deeper relationship. A higher level of confidence and comfort in Christ. We come back to the text again. (laughs) And so on and so forth, forever and ever, amen. You will not be omniscient in heaven. (laughs) So guess what you're going to continue to do for all of eternity? Learn. (laughs) Now, along the lines of the hermeneutical spiral, somehow our wicked evil hearts get involved, and often this leads to pride the further you are along the hermeneutical spiral. Don't fall prey to the snare of the enemy. God gives grace to the humble, and he opposes the proud. Okay? So the question that we have to ask ourselves as we are looking at this this morning, knowing why we're here, is are we in the midst of developing a discipline of lifelong, ongoing study of the Word of God? And if the answer is no, fix it. Moving forward, fix it. (laughs) Do you want to desire to interact with the text? Or do you want it to simply be a daily duty? You want a desire. And you want to nurture the desire, just like you want to nurture a relationship. Because 
We are not just studying for head knowledge. We're studying to grow in closeness to God. Draw near to God, and he will what? Draw near near to you. How are we supposed to draw near apart from the text? So we have to be humble in our lifelong pursuit of knowing and understanding and applying God's word. Amen? No person in this room is going to be left behind and no person in this room is going to be looked down on. Let's go to the next slide. I love this quote. All of us have limited intellectual and spiritual resources as we approach the mind of Christ in the parables. You could change this to in the text of Scripture. Kenneth Bailey is a genius, okay? Each of us is aware of great interpreters who are so far ahead of us that they're nearly out of sight. Others known to us may not have had the opportunity to learn what we have learned. This perspective is shared by the greatest scholar and the simplest believer. I love that word. It reminds me of the Proverbs. How long will you be simple? (laughs) All readers of Jesus' parables, all readers of the text of Scripture are challenged to do the best they can with what they have and not despair. Do not despair at the ignorance or achievements of others. It's not about a horizontal comparison. Who am I doing better than? Who am I ahead of in this race? It's not about that. It's about using our gifts, using what we know, to encourage and equip the body of believers and evangelize the lost, i.e. service to others. (laughs) Can you see that in here? So this is what we're after, everybody. We're after a deeper relationship with God. We're after knowing him through what he's communicated, taking what he's communicated and filtering it through the fellowship of the saints and returning again and again and again for the same experience. Amen? That's why we're here. There's no other reason we should have walked through the door. I'm hurting. Nothing I can say to you can minister to you like the Spirit of God. Nothing that I can say can minister to you like the word of God. And God may use me to help you, or he may use you to help me, but we cannot be so dependent on one another that we are excluding the greater one. Amen? Amen. (laughs) So as we prepare to dig in this morning to the parable of the Good Samaritan, I am, I'm excited and I'm scared because this story is intense and Jesus' words can be very, very difficult. So Lord, give us humility. Whatever it is that you want to do today, God, do it. And if we're standing in the way or the noise of the world is distracting us, I pray that you would silence that noise and that you would 
crush the obstacle, Lord. Give us the strength to tear down that idol so that we may be more clearly and wholly focused and dedicated to you. That's our goal, God. In every study that this church has done, we've listened to the word of God and we've read the word of God. I remember when Kirsten had first come to the church, her sister was visiting, I think from Fairbanks, and immediately upon the close of the service, her sister came to me and said, so what am I supposed to do and what does this church do when you study a book like Deuteronomy? Do you listen to the text and read it? Because the morning she was here, we listened to an entire epistle. And I said, well, that's a good question. My encouragement would be to read and listen to what it is that we're getting ready to study before coming in the door. And then as a community, when you have longer letters or longer books, we'll probably listen to the shorter sections. I never forgot that. And as we were coming to prepare to study for the parables, I was like, we need to listen and we need to read. They're two different disciplines. The brain is engaged in two different ways. I want to ask Isaiah to come up here. He's an actor. And I want to talk to him just real quick. And I want you guys to hear from him and not just from me about him. Now, I had the pleasure of going to see you perform. Uh, the last performance that I saw that you were in was over 90 minutes. Yep. Right? Yeah, about. About, yeah. Lots of lines. How long was your dialogue, just ballpark, just yours? Um, my lines were probably around, I'd say, 80% of the show. Yeah. Yeah. And to do your lines, you have to be familiar with the other actors' lines? Uh, yes, yes. Because they're, they're my cue in to when I would start my yeah. lines, yeah. yeah. So talk to me about how you memorize. What's your process like? When it comes to memorizing lines. Yeah, um, I would say I do three things. Um, one of them is first I, I read my lines and I write them down. I write them down in a notebook. Um, just my lines. So, and then I, my second step is I read all my lines and I record myself saying my lines. And after I'm done recording, I just put my AirPods in. And then whenever I'm doing like chores or anything, I just listen back to my own voice, saying my own lines. So when it's time for me to rehearse and mem have my lines memorized, it's almost like I'm singing a song that I was listening to all my day. And it's just my lines that are going through. Yeah. Yeah. That's good, right? Now, we could say he is a professional, okay? Because he is dedicating his life to acting. Your goal is to go to college, to continue to study, and to go on to professionally act, right? Yeah, professionally act and produce films. And produce yeah. films, yeah. So listen to what it was that he said today. Don't just listen to me, okay? <laughs> Read, write, record what you read and write, listen, and it helps commit to memory, right? Yes, it does. Yes, All it right, does. let's give him a hand. Thank you. Thank you.
look, we learn these, ti- these kinds of things by spending time together. I had the opportunity to go sit with Abraham, watch the play. We went to Taco Bell after. We ate. And I was like, bro, how do you do what you do? I can't memorize ver- a single verse in the Bible with a chapter and a reference. How do you memorize all of that? He broke it down for me. And I was like, oh, I can't wait for the day when I can use that. And I didn't have to use it today because he got to teach us. Look, I don't care how old you are. Learn from the young. And I don't care how young you are. Learn from the old. Amen? Amen. There is wisdom in a multitude of counsel. All right? And we trust that that is true. So what we're going to do right now, um, I'm going to ask TJ to bring the lights down. I want to remove the distractions, and then we're going to listen to the parable of the Good Samaritan. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this, you will live. The man wants to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? The parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and lifted him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandages. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. Record yourself so that when the day comes when you are responsible To give the proclamation, you can do so because it's like you've been listening to a song in your mind. Let's go ahead and hit the lights. What we just listened to was a dynamic reading of the scripture. What do I mean by that? I don't mean dynamic because there was music and because it was well-produced. I mean dynamic because it was the New Living Translation, a thought-for-thought interpretation and translation of the text. But when we study God's Word, 
We don't want to live in a dynamic interpretation. We want to live in a more literal interpretation. So when we read this morning, we're going to read from the English Standard Version. We could be reading from the NASB. We could be reading from the NIV. But I chose this morning to be reading from the ESV. Whatever translation you have in front of you is fine, but the text from the ESV is going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it, and I want you guys to listen to the words once again. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Is it frozen? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, Jesus asked. And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I want to set the context of what it is that we're looking at here. Luke's Gospel Let's put this uh, next slide up. We use this slide in our introduction, in our three-part introduction. And I want you to notice that Luke is a Gentile writing to Gentiles. Now why would that be important for the greater context of Luke's gospel and what it is that we're narrowing in on here in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Well, if you look at chapter 10... You see that Jesus sends out the 72. It's interesting. In the sending of the 72, he's sending them to the Gentiles. How do we know this to be true? Look at verse 7. Jesus' instructions, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves the wages. You know kosher. 
They can't just eat anything that's put in front of their face. But here Jesus is instructing them to do that very thing. And it's interesting. Luke is not only the author of the gospel, but he's the author of volume two Acts. And it's this pesky book right here that gets in the middle of them that so often forgets us of that reality. I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek when I talk about the Gospel of John being pesky, okay? It's in the book of Acts that the reality that the Messiah came for all is really on display. But I think in Luke chapter 10, we're getting a flavor of that right here. Jesus sending out the 72 to the Gentiles. The 72 return. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. If you have a Deuteronomy 32 worldview like I do, then you believe that at the Tower of Babel, God appointed lower Elohim, sons of God, divine beings, to rule over the nations. And their job was going to be to orient, we should say reorient, the worship of humanity back to Yahweh. But these Elohim rebelled against God, and they stole the worship of man. And that's how we got the different gods and the different nations and the different practices. And so it's interesting that in the dispersion of man over the world, in the earliest picture of the reclamation of the nations as the gospel goes out, two by two with the 72, God says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. The dominion, the lies, it was starting to come down. And why was it coming down? It was coming down because the gospel was being proclaimed. And so we see the heart of the Messiah, the heart of God, is for all people in all places in all time. And Luke is giving us a flavor of that. Now Jesus is speaking to the 72. And he's telling them, look, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And as he continues to teach them, he turns to the inter-disciples in the midst of all following him. And he says privately, in Luke chapter 10, I'm reading from verse 23, then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, talking to the 72 who had gone out. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. And it's in the midst of this private blessing that a specialist in the law stands up and is like, enough! <laughs> I'm going to put this man to the test. So we cannot let our First world, Western perspective on privacy dictate what's going on here in the text. Just because Jesus turns and speaks privately doesn't mean they're in private. We, hold on, sit in that chair. I'm going to go talk to my wife, your mother, and we're going to come back and tell you what's going on. You close the door. They can't hear what's going on. You have your private discussion. You come back, boom, you exercise discipline. That's not what's going on here. They're in the public eye. It's not just the disciples who are sitting and listening. That's clear. 
Because the lawyer is there and he's able to just stand up and he's interrupting the Lord in the midst of the blessing that he's presenting and speaking over the 72. So it's like, we got to be able to see this. If we don't see this, we're going to miss what's going on here. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Yeah. I'm glad you said that too, because we also need to make this distinction. We shouldn't think of this lawyer the way that we think of our lawyers. Okay, this man was a specialist in the Torah, okay? He's not going to be the one who exercises judgment. He's going to be the one who argues what it is that the law says and what it is that the law means. But the way that we think of our legal system, it's drastically different than their legal system. He specialized in the Pentateuch, the first, five books of the, New Te- the first five books of the Old Testament. Our lawyers do not specialize in that. <laughs> we have theologians that specialize in that. We have scholars who are Old Testament scholars who specialize in that. But we shouldn't think of our civic lawyers, okay? Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Look at this. He puts, he stands up, In first century culture, when the teacher is sitting down and you want to ask a question, you stand up. What do our children do? Let me see. I already picked on Kirsten. Who's your retired teacher? What do children do in a classroom when they want to speak up? (laughs) What should they do? Let me rephrase the question. What should they do? They raise their hand. Yep. So here's what we're seeing. We're seeing a pseudo sign of humility. I'm going to actually honor the cultural requirements, but what we see is an implicit deception. He's not standing up because he wants to learn something. He's not standing up because he has a genuine question. He's standing up because he wants to put the rabbi to the test. Now let me ask you something. Someone who has dedicated their life to studying something and specializes in that very thing? Young or old? Usually old. (laughs) Jesus is 33 approximately in his ministry. So here you have an expert in the law who is aged in the first century context testing the young rabbi. I wonder what school he went to. Was it the school of Shimei? Is he of the strictest of the Pharisees? Did he go to the school of Hillel? Is he more liberal? Has he had any real training? Or is he just some backwoods, podunk dude who dresses like a rabbi and is entrapping people and enticing them to follow him? I'm going to put an end to this. Yes. It could be. 
It could be that he's trying to do that because he should be the one that the people in that culture should be turning to, correct? Yeah, so that's an excellent observation. They're always constantly interrupting. They're constantly trying to take the attention that's on Jesus. Yep, and challenging. What's up, Kendall? I would argue that he was an observer passerby because if he was a dedicated Pharisee, he would have other responsibilities that wouldn't allow him to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're looking at a man who's older, whose culture would dictate that he would not only know more, but that he would have an understanding of that knowledge and that he would have been putting it into practice a lot longer than Jesus. He's honoring extrinsically, but implicitly, he's desiring to test. We know if we look at the gospel whole, right, knowing more about the whole helps us understand the particulars. If we look at the gospel narrative as a whole, so often when they test Jesus, they're trying to trap Jesus, okay? And look at this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this guy's a specialist in the law. He knows that you can do nothing to inherit anything because inheritance is a gift. So we got to slow down when we come to these things. And we got to see that although the lay person in the congregation might not be picking up on this, it's going to be drastically important if Jesus is able to pick up on this. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's saying, give me the formula. I want to be able to work for it. That way, I'll know that I'm justified. It's an interesting thing to be pronouncing a blessing on the 72 and to be interrupted in this context with this type of challenge. He said to him, I love Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I really <laughs> love Jesus. He said to him, what is written in the law? He points him right back to the Torah. You know how Jesus knew that he was a lawyer? The way that he was dressed. I, I don't know if you guys know this, but like, a Sunni Muslim and a Shiite Muslim do not dress the same. <laughs> and if you are familiar with Islamic culture, and if you're familiar with the, with the East, you know that what you wear can have an identification marker on who you are. Yeah. And so Jesus, everyone, not just Jesus, but everyone knows who he is and what he does because of how he's dressed. And so Jesus asks him the perfect question, but notice this tagline on the end of it. How do you read it? I love this line because it shows us early evidence that never has the law of God been simply read. It's forever been interpreted. He's not asking the lawyer for recitation. He's asking the lawyer for interpretation. 
How many of us know that what we know should have an effect on how we live? That's why you gotta love this question that Jesus is asking. When the lawyer's thinking, I got him, Jesus is saying, hold up, brother. <laughs> what does the law say? And how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now this guy knows his Torah. 613 commands. Of all the commands in the Torah, this is his synthesis of them. That's a wonderful way to identify someone who knows what they're talking about. You want someone to, you want to test someone's knowledge and understanding of what they know, ask them to summarize it for you in layman's terms. And if they can't do that, then they do not actually know what it is that they're talking about. So this guy, he's good at what he does because this actually matches the very same thing Jesus tells the rich young ruler. Not the rich young ruler, the lawyer who stood up to test him, I'm sorry, in Mark's gospel. When he asks Jesus, what is the greatest command? And Jesus gives him the very same answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You know what this shows? This shows that this was a common conversation that was going on in the first century. This was a common topic that they were trying to unpack, no different than today. How shall I inherit eternal life? Everybody wants to know. I, I, mean, I don't want to die. I don't want to cease to exist. I don't want to be blotted out, separated from the presence of God, which is life. And apart from the presence, there is no life. And so he gives a perfect summation. How do we know that he gives a perfect summation? Well, look at what Jesus says. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, go back to the previous slide. Go back one more. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now go back to our other slide. Verse 20. Do this and you will live. Is Jesus preaching works-based salvation? I mean, I, I'm going to say yeah. It is heart-based, but I'm going to say, yeah, it's a technicality. We're, gonna, we're about to, oh, intentionality, but it's a technicality. We're about to split some hairs probably in the room right here. Do this, and you will live. Jesus is not a liar. So what he's actually telling the lawyer, what you have said is true, he's telling him you can't do this. 
Because if you can do this, you are not in need of grace. And no one is capable of doing this. And so he puts on him. Well, that's the context of the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, do this and you will live. So I would just say the greater context of the conversation that's going on is that if he doesn't do this, we could turn it on its head and try to answer it in the negative. If he doesn't do this, he will not just cease to breathe, right? So the greater context would point us back to the, the initial question. So Jesus is saying, you, you can't do this. I love Dr. Michael Brown, who says that every day when we wake up, we fail to love God the way that we are created to. It's true. So in this life, when you go like this, you are failing to love God the way that you were created to because of the distractions of the world, because of the desires of the flesh, because of the enemy who's prowling and seeking to destroy you. And so when we look at this, we have to go, oh, what Jesus is instructing is impossible. I can't love God properly, let alone my neighbor who annoys the crap out of me. <laughs> God makes it easy to love him. My neighbor, not so much. And how are we supposed to know that our love for God is authentic? The only way that it's evidenced according to the double command is that we see one exercising love for their neighbor. If you cannot love your neighbor, you cannot love God. And John says that if you cannot love the one that you've seen, you cannot love the one that you have not seen. And so here we are confronted by the words of the Messiah. And this is very, very intense. And the lawyer, he doesn't like this. <laughs> But desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Immediately, he wants to limit the scope of the statement. He's not looking to include, he's looking to exclude. Look, Jesus, just tell me who my neighbor is, and I'll love him. Remember, Jesus asked him, what is in the law and how do you read it? We can look at Deuteronomy 6, 5. If we read Deuteronomy 6, 5, we need to read Deuteronomy 6, 4. So let's turn there in our Bibles. This is the great Shema of Israel. This passage is vitally important to all Jewish religion, which means it's vitally important to Jesus because he was born under the law and he fulfilled the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And everyone said, Amen. Right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words, look at verse 6, that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. 
What does it mean for a word to be on your heart? All of your thinking is cognitive, but they don't know that. They haven't discovered neurology in the first century. They know about the brain, but everything is felt here in this area. So what you know needs to be felt and it needs to be put into practice. And when you don't put it into practice, you feel it here. And when you do put it into practice, you feel it here. So make sure that the words of God are on your heart. They're felt, they're known, and they're used. They're not just committed to memory. Now look at Leviticus 19.18 because these two commands are tied and Jesus and the lawyer know this as they are having their little chess match here. Leviticus 19.18 You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now the lawyer's asking Jesus, how do you read it? I've given you my summation. Love God, love neighbor, according to Leviticus 19, 18. It's the sons of my own people who are my neighbor. It's not gonna cut it for Jesus. This is why context is king, everybody. Look at the very close of the chapter, verse 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do to him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So as the Pharisee is looking to limit the scope of who his neighbor is according to the law, Jesus is telling him, you're not qualified to put bounds on who your neighbor is according to the law. <laughs> you want to use the law? Let's go, baby. That's what I could just hear Jesus. He's like, come on. You think you one-up me? Let's go a little bit further in that scroll, my brother. Can you read that out loud for me? You sure you want to limit your neighbor? The Lord your God has told you not to limit your neighbor. How about that? And everyone in the house should say, I'm going to stop proof texting my brother and sister, and I'm going to stop proof texting the unbeliever because it's not the way that God intended the word to be used. Don't do it. I'm going to find a verse like Leviticus 19.18, and I'm going to define neighbor by my brother. That's my proof text. I'm going to exclude 33 and 34 because I don't like those ones so much. I might even forget them or forget to mention them in this battle that I'm having with this rabbi. Because if he doesn't know them, then he can't use them against me. Shoot. He not only knows it, he's the one who gave it to Moses on Sinai through the angels. Oh, snap. <laughs> so we're, we're here, and we're looking at this wonderful engagement. And you guys are like, Matt, I thought we were studying the parable. We haven't even got there yet. I'm telling you, we can't read the parable if we're not seeing what's happening around it. This is how the Word of God gets twisted. It's how it gets misused. 
but desiring to justify himself. This is how we know that the initial test question was not done in a righteous manner. He has a follow-on question in the queue. He knows his strategy. He's going into this. Anybody ever participated in a debate that they didn't prepare for? It's a bad strategy. (laughs) Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Look, he wants to limit the scope, and Jesus is not going to let him limit the scope. And Jesus does a wonderful thing. The, the lawyer gives a summation of the law by quoting the double love commandment, love of God and love of people. Jesus says, let me tell you a story. <laughs> and everybody there was like, hmm. Because everybody loves a story. But nobody likes to read law books. And so Jesus is not just speaking to the lawyer He's speaking to the lawyer in the context that everyone who is listening with an earshot will understand because he's a good teacher. And so let's look at the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. William Barclay says that this man who was traveling is an idiot. He says, you got to be stupid if you're going to be traveling alone in the first century. This is in a communalistic culture, the worst thing you could do is travel as an individual. And everybody says, amen. Pick that, pick up, I'm saying more than I'm saying. <laughs> This life that is lived and the journey that we're on should not be done alone. You are easy pickings if you are alone. Okay? Correct. Correct. It does not excuse other people's behavior. And we're about to see that come to life in full technicolor in just a second. The young people are like, what? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Look, this is a fictional story, but it has realities attached to it. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, this is a map. Okay? The way that maps work is north, east, south, west. Okay? North. Jericho is north of Jerusalem, but he's going down from Jericho. From Jerusalem to Jericho. Say that louder. It's important for pilots to know about elevation, isn't it? It is. It's important for us to know about elevation as well. You can see that Jerusalem sits at about 25 plus 100 feet to sea level. And Jericho's at negative 825. That's a drastic drop. And it's only about 17 miles. So this road was treacherous historically and everyone listening to the story would pick up on the reality that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho went down and it was windy and it was narrow in places and it had caves and it was the perfect place with razorbacks for thieves and robbers to hide and go gotcha (laughs) 
And so, although he's telling a fictional story, he's using reality to buttress what it is that he's teaching. Let's go back, go, go, go forward. The slide should be the, the very same verse that we're working on here. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. I love what Kirsten said about it. It doesn't excuse their behavior. Look, how many times when people are robbed, they're told, put their hands up, give me everything that you've got, and then they're just left alone. He's beaten and stripped, which is probably indicative of not only an idiot who travels alone, but an idiot who thinks that his possessions are worth more than his life, and therefore he puts them up, and he tries to fight back. He's beaten. He's stripped. And he's left half dead. We're not dealing with a very smart individual here. Anybody know someone like that in their life that's difficult to love? All, all of us. We are that person to somebody. That's the point. We are that person to somebody. Now by chance, my Calvinist brothers hate this part of the Bible. They do, because it doesn't say that it was predestined. It says, now by chance. <laughs> so, you know, I just wanted, I just wanted, I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> you can tell what side of the fence I fall on. <laughs> Okay, so now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. That's a great question. That we don't know. We don't know if the priest is traveling alone. But what we do know is that the priest is not supposed to be assumed walking. How often... Have we seen the cartoon of the Good Samaritan and the priest is walking along the road and he's like, <laughs> and then he's like, ooh, better get over on the other side. And no, no, no. The priests in the first century are high class. They're not walking anywhere. They're the people with the money. So as he's traveling, it's implied to the initial original audience that he's riding because he would have the means to do so. And that's important, because if we think he's walking, then he might have an excuse for not helping. He's got other reasons that he might not want to help. Ceremonial ritual purity? You know, is this brother even a Jew? Remember, he's been beaten and he's been stripped naked. Samaritans, Egyptians, and Israelites were all circumcised. We've already discussed how clothing can identify who you are and who you belong to. And there's no way for the priest to identify what tribe or what people group this man may be from. How, how by the hair?
Like Hasidic curls you're talking about? Yeah, I don't know that we have evidence for Hasidic curls early on. And yeah, but if his hair was a reflection, Siobhan's asking. Yeah, I don't know that we would anachronistically read a Hasidic tradition back into a first century tradition. We don't know, but we do know that he has a lower chance of identifying the man. You know, is he of the tribe of Levi? Is he a fellow priest? Is he a fellow Levite? When I roll, my hair does not fade anywhere. That's right. When you get beat up on the mats, your hair does not stay. I would agree, doing jujitsu. And so, like, that brings context to Siobhan's question. If he was beaten badly enough, would his hair even be indicative of where he might be from? And the answer is probably not. So, we'll say again. Could also have been pulled out. Absolutely. Brent's a street fighter. He would know. <laughs> it is. And the ambiguity is supposed to drive the point that Jesus is going to make. And so all these questions that we're asking are great questions. But in the end, we're not given any of these details. But we are supposed to look at this and go, oh, the priest could have been saying to himself, I can't tell if he's a Jew Therefore, I'm not required to help him because my interpretation of Leviticus 19, 18 is that only my Jewish brothers qualify as my neighbors. I'm not reading 33 and 34. And, oh, I'm ceremonially going to be defiled. Well, that shouldn't matter. You're leaving Jerusalem and going home to Jericho, which means he's already served his allotted time in the temple. And if your response is going to be, well, how do you know he doesn't live in Jerusalem and serve in the temple constantly? Luke has already told us in chapter 1 about John the Baptist's father, who is a part of a sect who is scheduled and working his job according to the calendar that he fulfills year after year. So we go all the way back to the very first chapter of Luke, and we get the context of where the priests work, what the priests do, what's required of them, and how they function. And so he's, he's not just looking and being heartless, let's say. He may, like the lawyer, be desiring to fulfill the will of God, but he may set apart himself from doing the compassionate thing because he thinks the law is more important. And so therefore, he would say, the context of my heart's desire is to serve and honor God. I can't go home and my neighbor ask me, how you doing there, bud? And he goes, oh, don't touch me. I just came from Jerusalem in the temple and on my way home, I was defiled. The neighbor would be like, a priest who worked in Jerusalem and functioned at the temple is defiled? Never let it be. So he's in a lose-lose situation. What if he's got plans with his wife and it's their son's like wedding ceremony coming up and he defiles himself and he's got to go back to Jerusalem and it takes a whole week for him to ceremonially become clear, clean and he misses the ceremony. I mean, we don't know what's going on in his life. But so often we're taught just, this priest sucks. He's not thinking only of himself. Maybe he actually is trying to honor God in what he's doing. And Jesus in this teaching is trying to show the lawyer who seems to be thinking along those same lines, this is not a good way of thinking. Jesus goes on to say, now by chance the priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, these are the lower echelon of helpers in the temple, 
when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now what happens if he is from the same town, because Jericho is not a huge metropolis, so he knows that he's serving in the temple at the same time as this priest, and he knows that the priest has left Jerusalem before him, he's headed to Jericho, he's traveling the same route, and he says, oh my goodness, the supervisor in the temple didn't help this guy. And in an honor and shame culture, if I usurp and do more than he did, I could shame him. And he, being the priest, and me being the Levite, he probably knows the law better than me. So he's probably trying to honor God in what he's doing, therefore I should honor him, because if I honor him, I'll be honoring God. And you see how the cultural context can really frame neither one of these guys in a bad light? But still what they're doing, Jesus is about to say, is not enough. It just goes to show that you don't need to have sinful intentions to not do the will of God. So likewise, the Levite came, passed, and saw on the other side. But a Samaritan, now, this is where the crowd would go, look at how important things are in threes. If I say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now that's Old Testament, right? If I'm in a modern context and I'm speaking to those of us who are 40 and above and I say lions and tigers and oh my. And if I'm talking to the young crowd, I say, oh, I'm headed out the door. I have my wallet, my keys, and my cell phone, right? Alaskans would say coat, okay? Context would determine the meaning of how you're going to respond to that. So look at the audience, just as this audience knows in threes, the same audience knows in threes. They would be expecting, like our joke, you know, the priest, the rabbi, and the pastor. They would be expecting the priest, the Levite, and the Jewish layman. Because that's how stories would have been told in their culture. But Jesus throws them a curveball here. And he says, so likewise... So likewise, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The priest saw, the Levite saw, and the Samaritan saw. All of them are without excuse. Only one of them responded properly while two of them responded improperly. The Samaritan, he saw him and he had compassion. He felt here, again, remember? The law of God on your what? Because where you, your heart and your stomach is where you feel your feelings. And here he is, the very thing that Deuteronomy 6.6 6, He's saying right after 6-5, meditate on it, commend it to your heart and know it. He feels compassion, okay? This Samaritan would have access to the Samaritan Pentateuch. He would have access to worship on Mount Gerizim. And by his description, he would be honoring God in his life too showing that there is no reason to put ceremonial or ritual purity 
above or beyond compassion. He went up to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. I don't travel with a first aid kit. It's probably irresponsible for for me to continue to do that, and I should change that. But I don't travel with a first aid kit. How many of us don't travel with a first aid kit? How many of us know that first aid kits weren't largely marketed and accessible in the first century? So the first question I'd be asking is, where does this man get the bandages? His own clothing. His own clothing. He's willing to rend his own garment for the sake of someone else. Oil and wine. Wine has alcohol in it, so it can be used like an antiseptic. And oil can soothe the wine. If you've been cut and you're out in the sun and the sun begins to dry the blood and you have to move, some oil on the wound would be soothing. Not only... Does he do that? But he dismounts his own beast of burden and he puts the man in his place, walking the rest of the dangerous, treacherous route. Then he comes to an inn and he doesn't drop him off. He takes care of him. So he checks himself into the inn alongside of the man for the first night. Anybody ever have deadlines on their destinations and travel times? All of us. See how this man didn't let ceremonial or ritual purity get in his way, and he didn't let a deadline stop him from doing the greater good. It was compassion-driven behavior. The next day he wakes up, he takes out two denarii, And he gives them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This is super important. Absolutely. Everybody's affected. There's no, uh, there's no find my, or looking at my spouse's location in the first century. You know what I'm saying? And traveling that road and the dangers that it provided, it presented could cause the family anguish if it took him longer than he had planned. Now here's what we need to understand. With this man at the inn, if he does not pay up front and promise to pay in the future, anything that is used over and above the two denarii, the innkeeper can take the man who's been staying in his place and sell him into slavery. Think about Jesus' teachings, right? When he tells the story of the one who forgave the debt and then went out to exact the debt, and when he couldn't, what did he do? He put him into prison. So if the Samaritan didn't offer up front and promise to come back and take care of anything over and above, he could have put the man in a worse set of circumstances than he was in, lying half dead on the side of the road. What's up, Tommy? Um, excuse me. Some of my research 
Yeah, so Tommy's... Yep, Tommy's talking about what some scholars would argue two denarii would cover. Now, I read about eight different commentaries and not a single one of them agreed <laughs> on what the wage that was given and paid would cover. But Tommy's point should not be missed. All of them make the argument that what was given should have been an abundance. Okay? And so he's taken his own clothes, he's taken his own wine, he's taken his own oil, he's taken his own beast of burden, he's taken his own money, and he's provided for the man who had nothing, and then he's promised to do more on top of that if necessary. All of this at great inconvenience to himself. Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? I love this. The man asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus' story would imply that the neighbor would be the man in need. But Jesus turns this on its head and says, of these three, which of them was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. So the lawyer listening to the story would be like, well, the man that needed help is my neighbor, but Jesus doesn't let him off that easy. Who's the neighbor? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? The story ends open-ended. There is the response, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. But so much can be said about these last two verses. And this is where it gets hard. Because this is where I can't look at myself in the mirror. After reading a story like this and studying it and recognizing that I lack compassion. Which of the three? I don't want to look at the Samaritan. So often I want to justify my actions. And so often I want to justify my actions and my decisions that lead to my actions based on things like the priest or the Levite could have justified their own actions on. And Jesus is forcing me, like he's forcing the lawyer, to look at the Samaritan. And he can't even get himself, bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says the one. <laughs> the racial tension in this time period was drastic. Think about John chapter 4, the woman at the Samaritan. What does she say to Jesus? You, a Jew, ask me for a drink. Jews have nothing to do with us Samaritans. This was well known by the Samaritan people, and that same feeling was extended back to the Jews, by the way. In John chapter 8, when they're accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed, they call him a Samaritan, which means the title had become a colloquial 
term that was derogatory, okay? So nobody in this context would want to admit that the Samaritan was the neighborly one. And so what does this teach us? This teaches us that you could be the greatest theologian in the world, everybody. You can know the text of Scripture inside and outside, and you can be a piece of work. Desiring to justify himself, he wanted to limit the scope of the question. And Jesus says, not on my watch. The command is the final line out of Jesus' mouth in this. You go and do likewise. This is not a suggestion, church. This is a command to the lawyer. Now, I said the the story ends open-ended. We don't know. Did the lawyer respond like the rich young ruler? Did he hang his head and walk away in shame? How did he respond? Luke doesn't tell us. And I don't think he tells us because he wants his readers to see in themselves the lawyer. And it leaves the question hanging for them. How are we going to respond today? I want to look at a couple of applications. We're not going to over-allegorize this, but we are going to talk about the single point of allegory that I would encourage all of us to hold fast to. The Good Samaritan represents Christ who came out of nowhere, (laughs) saw a man half dead and in need, and gave everything that he had to give for the man's greater good. Ask yourself this. Jericho is a Jerusalem town. Let's go to the map slide. You're a Samaritan you are hated by the Jews, and you find a, for the context of the story, the Jews listening would, had to, would have had to assume the man was a Jew if the Samaritan would have come into contact with him and it would have somehow shamed their culture. Okay, so here's the deal. How would it fend for the Samaritan going into a Jewish town with a Jewish man draped over his donkey, beaten half dead. Let's give some context here. Think antebellum slave era, and a black man who is clearly a slave has found a slave owner beaten half dead on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, and he decides the next town, they're not so friendly especially to the likes of me, but I can do nothing other than what God has done for me and put this man on my animal or on my back and carry him into town. Now, he could have dropped him at the gates of Jericho and beat feet. It'd be like pulling up to the hospital and kicking someone overdosing out of your car and honking your horn and driving away. That happens so often in our town because people don't want to get caught. Do, you know, partnering with that type of person. He goes into the inn. He comes out the next day. Can you imagine antebellum slavery? We're going back to this. 
How many white slave owners would have been waiting outside the inn for the slave that the word had traveled through town that a black man had brought in a white man who was injured? Even if he had done the right thing, how do you think the slave owners would have treated him? They would have killed him. They would have, they would have hung him probably. Or they would have beat him to death. So the Christological aspect of Jesus being the Good Samaritan in this narrative, actually Luke is pointing to the Passion narrative. And he's saying, recognize the Messiah for who he is. He didn't just come into the world and at great cost to himself, give of himself. He knew what he was getting into, no different than the Samaritan would have known he was getting into, entering a Jewish town like Jericho, and he did it anyway. Nothing was going to stop this man from putting his compassion into action. That's the Christological application, okay? And I stole these last three application points from Dr. Toussaint, who is the professor emeritus of biblical exegesis at Dallas Theological Seminary. He wants the church to know that it's not enough to see the need. The priest and the Levite saw the man no different than the Samaritan. So what we need to hear this morning, church, is that it's not enough to see the need. Good intentions, what do they say? They pave the road to hell. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers, sending good vibes. <laughs> you know, whatever that means. It's not enough to see the need, saints. Point number two, what you do is dependent on what you see. What the priest did, it was dependent on what he saw. No different than the Levite. No different than the Samaritan. Those are excellent application points. But this third one, this one's hard. What you see is determined by who you are. Who you are is determined by who you see. Who is my neighbor? We cannot settle on limiting the scope of these kinds of questions, saints. And you're probably asking yourself right now, well, Matt, what am I supposed to do? You know, like, what is it that I'm supposed to do? I can't help everybody. <laughs> you were just talking about end-of-year giving and all of the stuff that comes in the mail and every need, and every need is viable. But I'm only one person, Matt. You can't expect me to actually take on it all. And I want us to know that that's not the point of the parable. <laughs> the point of the parable is summed up in that third point. What you see is determined by who you are. Who you are is determined by who you see. I'm trying to find it in my notes here. If you guys will give me a second. Here it is. Augustine writes this. 
When Jesus says, give to everyone who asks, he doesn't say give everything that he or she asks for. Let me say that again. When Jesus says, give to everyone who asks, and this is from the Sermon on the Mount, but I think the context applies, he doesn't say to give everything that he or she asks for. In this parable, did the man who was laying there half dead have to ask for anything? He didn't. It was implied. He was a man in need. And so we need to remember that when we're struggling through the idea of who am I supposed to be compassionate towards and how is my compassion supposed to manifest in action. Look, we are supposed to feel compassion for all. Knowing that we cannot do everything for everybody, wisdom must lead us in how we are going to minister to those in need. Amen? Now, I want to finish by having you guys look at these images. Because these images, they should cause an emotional response. And this is not emotional manipulation. These are real things in real times that help us see the parable in our culture. When I came back as a veteran from Iraq and Afghanistan, I really, really hated the homeless. Just being honest with you guys. I'd drive by and I'd think, help yourself, you lazy, good-for-nothing individual. You got two good feet and two hands. I don't know their story. I don't know their background. I don't know the road that has led them to the place that they are. But I do know that I lacked any and all compassion. When I looked at them, I didn't see someone who had the image of God. Do we see it and do we think not my problem? Someone else will pick up the tab. I'm too busy. I have greater goals and I'm not going to be able to achieve my goals if I sacrifice my time and my resources to lend aid here. Let's go to the next slide. What you see is determined by who you are. Who you are is determined by what you see. How many of us stand on one side of the aisle and refuse to see the image of God in an individual who doesn't agree with us. The Samaritans and the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Essenes and the Zealots. This is nothing new, people. This is nothing new. What do you see? And what you see is determined by who you are. Let's go to the next slide. How often are we hoping that someone from this community is going to walk through the doors of our church hungry for the gospel 
Or do we think, oh, I really hope they don't come here because I don't want them to influence my children. Our thoughts end up mimicking more what their signs say. Why would we fear the unbeliever in the midst of the fellowship of the saints dictating our movement in a negative direction when we have the words of life? Fear not, for I am with you. Did Paul fear going to Mars Hill? and engaging with the Epicureans and the philosophers and the Stoics of his day? No, he did not. When they wouldn't come to him, he went to them. And you know what he did once he went to them? He invited them to follow. What you see is determined by who you are. We were once all far off, Paul says in Ephesians. So easily we forget. Let's go to the next slide. How many of us, because of our theology, are just praying for a similar outcome to the five-day war? Not seeing image bearers who need the gospel, and if their life is extinguished before they hear the gospel, they'll be separated from God for eternity. Everybody in the room has an opinion on all of the photos that we just looked at together. And all I'm saying is that when you see these groups of people My prayer is that we will have compassion because of what we see and that our action will be driven by our compassion. Amen? It's very, very difficult to stand up here and to unpack a sermon like this knowing my own thoughts. knowing my heart's desires and dispositions. But it's my responsibility to stand here in your presence and to speak the truth. And so I want everybody in the room to hopefully leave here today as conflicted and as convicted as I was when I was studying for this parable. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the hard words of Jesus. God, we are wholly inadequate. Incapable of righteousness and holiness. And if it were not for your love that you lavished on us, we would not be able to love in return, or to love others. And so, Father, we thank you for the fact that you are in hot pursuit of humanity. 
that you have not left us to our own devices. And that you are, by definition, our greatest advocate. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to study the parables, we would just be wrecked week after week. And that in that time, Lord, that's when you would do your greatest work of sanctifying and transforming us so that we can better image you. Help us to leave here, Father, different than we walked through the door this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.